the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hi, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we'll hear from Bronwyn Ryrie-Jones. Bronwyn is currently a doctoral candidate in education at the University of Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Although currently on a maternity leave, she's still working with schools in the Melbourne area. The area where I think Bronwyn has the most to share with other teachers is on assessment. You'll hear in our conversation that she has some practical ways to make assessment useful to instruction and has some ideas to help us use data to inform our practice. We get into all sorts of strategies and practices from rubrics to progressions. I think you'll find our conversation useful and interesting. If you like this episode, please connect with Intersection Education on our website, www.intersectioneducation.com, on Facebook or on Twitter, at IntersectionEd. It also helps us out when you rate or leave a review on iTunes. Here is my conversation with Bronwyn Ryrie-Jones. Hi, Bronwyn. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for uh, speaking to me today. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, I know that you got your start in teaching coming a little bit from music and that you were a member of the Australian Chamber Choir. Tell me how old you were when you were part of this choir and maybe some of the things that um, if you're, if people aren't really familiar with a chamber choir, what that might be and how it might lead you to education. Yeah, sure. So was 24 when I joined the choir, so um, relatively young. Um, I had a history of sort of singing in choirs all through um, sort of high school, um, but I'd never pursued it professionally. And then this opportunity came up for a soprano to audition for a European tour. And in your 20s, you always have the next four weeks available to just go off overseas because, you know, you're in your 20s. And so I just jumped on board. Um so I was based in Melbourne and um, led by Douglas Lawrence, who's a really well-respected conductor in Melbourne. Um, and it was fantastic. It was awesome. Went through all Germany, um, Denmark, Switzerland, Italy, <coughs> singing in amazing places. Um, and it was a real challenge. So I suppose how that got me into teaching, it's actually really good timing because when I joined the choir, I had sworn I was never going to be a teacher. I'd finished my teaching qualification um, and thought teaching wasn't for me. And then when I came back, um, a music teaching job part-time landed in my lap and I thought, oh, I'll give that a go. And then um, actually just fell in love with teaching through music. So it was kind of this really nice springboard into my career. That, that is great. And I'm glad that uh, that springboard appeared. But what was it about teaching when you had decided that it was not for you, that that was in your mind things that, that weren't appealing? What, what was it about the teaching going through your pre-service, your practicum teaching, that 
that you found out about teaching that you didn't like? Um, I think I'm actually maybe born to be a high school teacher because I didn't like the idea that I had the same students kind of 9 till 3.30 Monday to Friday in an elementary or primary setting. Um, I found that sort of lack of diversity in that, seeing the same people and them seeing me um, all the time and teaching everything to the same group of kids. Um, kind of wasn't until I got a lot of diversity in my career that I realized that I must have really been missing that early on. So there's nothing about the actual act of teaching that I disliked. I think it was just the structure Mm -hmm. um, of primary or elementary teaching that uh, I must have struggled with, that lack of um, sort of change, diversity in that sense. Now, now it's it's actually fairly rare that I speak with a music teacher. They seem to be um, passionate, and those that are music teachers, you definitely you can definitely see that. What was it about teaching music that you liked? Um, to be honest, I think it was singing. I just love singing with children. I think it's completely irresistible to hear children sing. I think adults have decided somewhere along the line that they can't sing. It was completely false. Everybody can sing. And um, I was used to only ever singing these kind of horrible renditions of happy birthday over these morning teas in schools. And then all of a sudden was in front of kids every day, 30, 40 of them at a time, singing rounds, fell in love with a lot of childhood songs that I had really missed and adored and started a choral program. So I kind of came into this school that had no music program and was really challenged by how little curriculum there was and then kind of realized, well, I can build this from the ground up. And by the time I went on um, leave, I'm currently on leave from uh, my position at my school, we've got uh, three choirs, the largest of which is auditioned with 90 students in it, got two junior choirs. Um, Every second year we do a whole school production. We've had up to 680 kids on and off stage in one night in those big productions. So it was just singing kind of opened up this whole other world i guess that i could get involved in and uh yeah loved it well not only does that sound fantastic but it sounds like you're offering some pretty amazing experiences for your for your students that's yeah it's pretty great um now did you always teach music or did you did you actually teach other subjects in the end despite your best efforts um outside of music I always taught music and then I moved straight from my music teaching position into a leadership position at my school. So I moved out of the music classroom and very neatly my husband moved into the music teaching position (laughs) uh, that I was in. Um, I just had kept him like warming the bench for when I wanted to leave. So he came in, um, picked up where I had kind of left off and then I was in a teaching coaching position but still Really luckily was able to keep my choirs, so my principal gave me time to keep that running, which is great. Yeah, that is that sounds like uh, a great ability to pursue both your passion and maybe even some leadership new things. That's great. Um, now, I, I know you moved slowly into pursuing some more academic research, which is interesting. Teachers often do that. Um, what are some of the things that, that made you decide to go look at maybe that academic side of education a little bit more closely and to pursue that? Uh, and it seems like that was at the same time as you were still teaching. 
Yeah, I think uh, probably starts the same this way for a lot of people that I just loved learning and I loved uh, sort of formal opportunities to learn and demonstrate what I knew and challenge myself. And so I was teaching part-time and then stepped back in to do my master's. So it was just through doing my master's. Um, Actually, my old lecturers at RMIT University, which is a university here in Melbourne, where I had studied teaching, uh, got wind of the fact that I was thinking about not going into teaching. And so they kind of got on my back and got me in to do some work (laughs) with them. Uh, And so I got a little taste of you know, university life, I kind of, um, you know, you could go to the toilet when you wanted to and I thought that was really magical. Um, And you could have coffee at lunch and I was like, oh, this is pretty great. And so I, yeah, studied my master's at uh, MGSE at the Graduate School of Education in Melbourne and uh, that's where I now work. Um, But I have to give a shout out to, yeah, a few of my lecturers um, who had stuck with me through the uni is for kind of encouraging me to uh, cross over to the dark side of academia. It's great. (laughs) Now, I asked uh, Dr. Duncan Simons this question. I had him on in uh, a couple weeks ago. And I know you guys are at the same university, the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. And, you know, it is highly regarded. Even over here in Canada, we hear about some of the work that's going on. Um, why, Why do you think that is why what what do you think they've got going on over there um at the graduate school of education of the university of melbourne that is giving it the good reputation it has yeah it's a really uh tricky question to answer i mean it's hard to go past um saying the people you know any faculty is only as good as its people um but you know there are good people everywhere i think that um locally i would say one thing that really strikes me about Melbourne is that the graduate stu- uh, school has um, such a consistency of vision and message. The model of teaching um, is very clear. We operate with a clinical model of teaching where we want our teacher candidates to think about what students are ready to learn, to select some evidence-based interventions, to see how they've gone, you know, constantly reflect using this clinical judgment cycle. And so that kind of means that we're like all the courses are bound together by this vision of the types of thinkers and types of practitioners um, that we want to go out into the workforce. And I know when I studied teaching, I sort of moved from literacy to numeracy, PE classes, and I totally missed that golden thread. I saw theories as being about early childhood or as being about literacy or teaching theories being about that model of PE teaching and didn't get any sense of this types of evaluative thinking that would, you know, see me in good stead no matter what I was teaching or where. Um, And so... I really think that, you know, I can be sitting around a table at MGSE at the graduate school and we'll be, you know, planning a course or planning an assessment and it doesn't matter who's at the table. But experts from so many different fields with such interesting backgrounds with a real common understanding of the competencies and capabilities that we want our candidates to have, our student teachers to have, you know, when they graduate. Um, And I find that exciting. I found it really exciting to work somewhere with such um, sort of a, like a dogged commitment to, to this vision. Yeah, a dogged committed, commitment to a vision that, that's not necessarily easy to, to A, define what you've done and to B, to 
produce because ultimately that that's the measure of your success, right? You're producing these graduates who, who understand that vision as well and who live that vision. So that's great. Now this next question. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say one, you know, a a really unique part of that, which I should have mentioned is that it's actually, um, it's really supported by the structures. So I'm a clinical specialist at the School of Education, um, which is kind of a strange uh, term for the person who uh, goes out and supervises student teachers on their placements. And the fact that the university has this whole host of people who are employed to do that, you know, I look after about 30 student teachers sort of based on the geography of where they've placed and go out and assist them to develop that clinical reasoning in situ, drawing on what they're doing at the university. And I think it would be um, really difficult for the model to hold up without that. And so not only do we have this clinical approach to teaching, we're looking at evaluative thinking, but the people who are employed by the university uh, who are teaching, who are lecturing, who are tutoring, are then going out and saying, well, with that particular model that we were looking at on Thursday, what were you thinking when you set up this learning, you know, for, for James that I saw you just do then? Did you think about that? You know, how are you seeing the links between what we're doing at university and what's happening in the classroom? So that's really critical too. Yeah, that is amazing to take or link the learning lessons outside of the the classroom setting and then make that we do that with students all the time we make that link because we don't assume that they're always going to make it um but we don't do that for university students so that's interesting that that's an approach you're taking yeah 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 now one of the the next question might actually lead to that you talked about some of the main threads the the big ideas that no matter what you're going to teach you need to know and I know that your one of your main areas of interest is assessment and and how it impacts all the aspects of teaching and learning. Tell me you know if you had to break down your views on assessment or what you've learned about assessment um how what might that be in kind of a succinct short way? Yeah, so I've been teaching um, with the Assessment Research Centre, which is one of the research institutes at at the graduate school. And um, that's given me a really uh, sort of affirmed up my approach to assessment and I've kind of fallen in love with it, which is sad. But, um, you know, this developmental approach to assessment that we teach um, is very much focused on the fact that all students can learn. And it sounds kind of self-evident, but... um, in fact, a lot of our assessments really leave our top kids behind. Um, I do so much consulting with schools and I often say, so, you know, let, let's talk through this assessment. And I say, you know, tell me the items or the parts of this task or the questions on this test that your top kids are, are going to be really challenged by. And so one of the key things about assessment is that it really needs to cater for all students, including our top kids. Um, we have a huge focus on evidence. So we look at what students are doing, saying, making or writing, and we say that nothing else is evidence. It's what your kids are producing, what they're doing. That's your assessment data. And then from there, the more that we can gather of that and the the better we can make that evidence, then the inferences we make about student learning um, are obviously more reliable. Um, We have an approach to assessment that looks at Um, sort of collegiate practice. So we focus on this idea of our students, not mine. 
Um, sec, uh, sort of high school teachers are a bit better th- at, at this because they're used to dealing with lots of other people's students all the time. Right. The primary or elementary teachers can be a little bit, um, you know, take ownership of their, their kids in a way that sort of disallows that exchange of evidence from classroom to classroom. Um, and sort of importantly, um, we also think about assessment as being for teaching. There is summative assessment, um, but, you know, all the evidence points to the fact that the best assessment that we can get, that we can use, um, has to be timed in a way that means that we can do something with it for our teaching. And um, I haven't been very succinct there, but, uh, yeah, it's basically a developmental a developmental approach um, and all based on progressions of learning. So this under, underlying um, moving students from, you know, least complex things through to more complex things and really understanding what it is that we're teaching and then in turn being able to gather data to get good information about what students know. I want to I drill down into the question of data. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, we had one of our guests, Christy O'Neill. She even joked that it was the D word or the word <laughs> that shall not be named. And I know Australia, at least certain certain parts of Australia, has had a bit of a complicated history with data and data walls and all that kind of stuff. Um, yep. I mean, so we have an idea of why teachers might have such a negative vision of data, but... Uh, what are some of the things that you have done to have teachers really embrace this idea of collecting data, um, using the data? What do you do to show someone that this is valuable information to have to impact student teaching and learning? Yeah, I actually really liked the the story that Christy told in her episode of this podcast because her definition of data and the, the story that um, – she told was really about getting teachers to understand that data is your, can be your kid's work up on the wall. You know, it's just what's happening in classrooms. Um, and so definitely one mistake I think we have made is that we've taken assessment away from teachers and the data has gone with it. You know, teachers don't see that data is um, what's on their desk, what's in their um, students' books. And that's um, it's a real shame because you can get really excited about data, um, but not if it's a snapshot one point in time on a standardized or external test that you've had nothing to do with. Um, and I think time and time again, when I go into schools, like there's this beautiful little school I'm working with in Melbourne, um, Montmorency Primary School, really lovely, engaged group of teachers ready to collaborate, ready to learn. And I asked them last week, I said, you know, what sort of data do you use? And they started to reel off all of these names of products that they've bought and tests that they use and they've all um, externally developed. Um, And I think that it's hard um, for them to get excited about data if they don't see it as being part of capturing what they're doing in their classrooms day to day. So, One massive thing that we do um, with our candidates at the graduate school and also in my private consultancy is actually getting teachers to develop tools to allow them to capture data that they want. Mm -hmm. And that can look like them writing a progression of learning. It can look like seven history teachers sitting down together and say, okay, year nine, source analysis, industrial revolution, what tool would we develop to capture exactly what our students know at the beginning Um, and to track their progress throughout the task and you get teachers starting to develop tools and then you say all right now you go test that and get back some data and they're interested 
they want to know how did that task go? Was it too easy, too hard? You know, when, when we developed that item, did we pitch that right? You know, we thought so-and-so would struggle with these items. How did that look? And you get people excited because the data speaks to work they've done and, and the assessment tools they're using are products of their work, not something else to do in their work, you know? Um, well, it sounds so, like one of yeah. the fundamental things that you, you're talking about there is that you've, you've clearly defined what data is. Right. So it's not like they are thinking that it must be numbers. Uh, and I think that having that larger vision of data just, just changes the perspective right away from the hop. You can get excited yeah. about um, amazing student writing, for instance, yeah. in ways that it's not able, you're not able to, as you said, get excited about, you know, some standardized score um, on a <laughs> externally produced multiple choice timed whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I love that idea that you guys have and 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 it's been talked around before this idea of coming back. Okay, what did you learn from that series? Now, is that something that you guys have a structure for? Is that maybe something personally that you have a structure for this whole idea of, you know, a cycle or or you know, using data to then inform the practice or is it just something it's a natural kind of um practice strategy? Yeah, so, you know, it depends. A lot of schools operate in different ways, but we um, definitely look at teachers coming together in, you know, a, like a professional learning community, a professional learning team. Um, I mean, what's essential to examining work or evidence is at least some tool through which to have the discussions, right? Like right. you get six teachers sitting around looking at a piece of writing, uh, a persuasive piece of text that students have developed what are you looking for what have you agreed that's the scope of skills that this is trying that you're trying to assess what are the levels of quality look like um have you had that conversation and did you define that first before you set the task because if you did and you've got a tool that you've developed together that, that you understand what you're looking at you've then got something evidence-based to come back to and i think one of the biggest mistakes um around looking at evidence of student work is that it's really hard to challenge on inference. It's really hard to challenge data or to have data discussions on inference alone. And so having that evidence-based tool, what did the student do say make right that made you, you know, infer that? And having some tools, so rubrics are really common, mm -hmm. um, useful tool if they're done well, um, just progressions of learning, like different levels of quality articulated in evidence-based terms. So whether, you know, whatever the structure is around how, schools, you know, want to manage the way that their, their teachers examine data together. Um, I think it's really important that, that they have tools through which to do that. It's very hard to sit around with 10 pieces of work and make sense of what you're mm -hmm. looking at um, without a good tool to do that with. You said that you liked rubrics if they're done right. Um, tell me about what that looks like in your head when you say a rubric done right. Um, perhaps describe what that process is to correctly make the rubric and, and maybe I'm, I'm guessing here, but maybe even sharing that with the students before the, the work. Yeah. So uh, I don't, not necessarily a right or wrong with rubrics. In fact, I can't recall ever using one that worked really well. <laughs> um, even the, the, the ones that on paper look absolutely perfect. Um, you know, the, there's always um, wiggle room or, or things that haven't worked so well. But um, Patrick Griffin's done some great um, research out of the Assessment Research Centre in Melbourne um, and a whole team of researchers there looking at, well, 
what would make a rubric more reliable? And there are a few key things to that. So the first thing is that it has to be evidence-based. So if your rubric hinges solely on inference, it's almost unusable. If I sit down and I'm looking at a rubric that says good argument, excellent argument, outstanding argument, (laughs) outstanding argument, very well delivered, I, I might as well use no tool at all because it's based on inference and therefore, you know, the validity um, of the discussions we'll have of the inferences we can make if the tool is inference-based is really minimal. So one of the key things, probably the biggest um, thing I would say, is that you want to go back to your rubrics and check, are the things in here observable? Mm. Very good isn't observable, but but what what made it very good? Well, you know, the, the student linked their argument. Okay, write that down. What else was observable? Um, they used a metaphor. Okay, write that down. What else was observable? So if your rubrics are full of inferences, which a lot of them are, it doesn't make them unusable, but it's a good place to start by saying, all right, well, what made it, what was observable that made that argument really good? And what, what did the student do at the next level that that student didn't do? And when you start to articulate that, it gets a bit exciting because this is where you get teachers actually developing tools where they're articulating their expectations, they're articulating the things that they are teaching, the the specific observable things that they want their students to be able to do, say, make right. And these kinds of tools are are really much more usable. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, you know, being evidence-based is one of the first things I'd say about a, a, a rubric. And the second thing is that um, you're not trying to assess too much. You know, sometimes rubrics in in one box, it kind of describes 400 things a student might be doing. And they're not usable and teachers get frustrated. So really being sure of each of the task components, or we would call them the indicative behaviours, the behaviours that indicate the capability, and then describing them as clearly and precisely as you can. And then, as you said before, um, using them with with students, giving them to students um, and unpacking that. Yeah. One of the words that you used that is used less often in Canada, and uh, I'd like you to define, is is the idea of progressions. Uh, we we know what what progressions are in a large scale, but we don't often talk about progressions. So maybe maybe give just very very shortly, you know, what is it what does it mean for you in a classroom setting when you're talking with a particular teacher? What does that progression look like? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure we have it very clearly defined here either. Um, I think people mean a lot of different things when they use this word. When I use the word, often I'm referring to just the abstract kind of idea that learning is developmental and that in the things that you're teaching, there are progressions of learning. So if you're teaching someone to drive a car, what are the types of things that they do early on in that progression? Where do you expect them to get as they become more sophisticated at doing that? How are the behaviors changing? What does that progression of learning start to look like? And what does it look like as it gets more and more complex? And I use this, I often in my consultancy draw a line on the board and it's just an arrow headed to the right. And I just say, this is the progression. If you know what the progression is, you can start to develop tools to assess a progression of learning but if you lose sight of what that progression is you can fall into a trap so here's an example you 
know that the progression of learning that you're teaching, that you're wanting to assess is some area of historical knowledge, say. And then the assessment task that you set is an oral presentation. And I often say to teachers, okay, so what are some of the skills along the progression of oral present, you know, presenting something orally that students would need to know? Because we've introduced a new kind of line here. There's a new progression here. And they're like, oh, so we've got two things progressing here. We have the historical content knowledge, which is progressing over there. And then I've got this other thing that I'm introducing through my assessment that I need to teach concurrently. And so we say, well, that's a separate capability. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about progressions, often I'm just referring to this underlying capability, the main thing you want students to be able to do and how that progresses. And then articulating that sometimes is done in levels. So you will have teachers saying, okay, at the first level of um, source analysis, we expect students to be able to identify a source. We want them to be able to determine the difference between primary and secondary sources. We want them to be able to do ABC. At the next level, we want them to be able to, and it's just general statements that are increasing stages of increasing levels of competence but if you can't articulate that your assessments tend to be a bit of a mixed bag around a topic Mm -hmm. you know like we'll get to the end of um, the unit and then we'll give them this test and let's write some questions and it's in and around all the stuff we've done Mm -hmm. rather than well let's look at all the different levels all the sophisticated levels of sophistication we expect our students to be able to know and let's write some items that elicit data at those levels. So mm-hmm. what you know, what would we get students doing to show us that sort of level one kind of thinking? And then what would it look like at level two? Um, and then we start to be more meaningful in our assessment to try and capture performance at those different levels. Um, now, recently, you know, we're kind of talking about uh, progression in Australia in a little bit of a different way. Um, looking at moving away from sort of this idea of year-level curriculum to curriculum based on progressions. But I think that's kind of – kind of so there's more work to do in, in defining what we mean um, when we talk about progressions because, yeah, it's going in a few different directions. Right. One of the ways it seems that we talk about the same concept is this idea that, you know, you've got multi, um, multi-levels inside the same grade. The idea that, you know, you've probably got a five-year spread. And so the grade five teacher needs to know the grade three, the grade four, the grade five, the grade six, and the grade seven curriculum and the progressions involved in that so that they can kind mm-hmm. of meet students at their zone of proximal development or where they're at, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're, you're talking a lot about that as well, even inside of that. So against the grade and then, you know, up and down, you talked about the higher end students and, and I'm sure that it applies to to maybe some of the stru- uh, students who are below grade level as well. Mm. Um, let's say you were talking to someone and you – they're they're intrigued at what you said and they wanted to make a first step they say okay i want to make a first go at this i want to improve my assessment practice um what would you say what is the one thing that you would say is the most beneficial or going to have the biggest impact if they wanted to change and, and again you don't know what it is but you would say okay if you're doing this with assessment practice you're going to probably get this right or it's going to have a big impact Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Look, I can say that in my own work with schools, one of the first things I say is to sit down together and to try and articulate what 
you are teaching at different levels in evidence-based terms. Mm-hmm. And the reason I get people to start with that is that the this is where sort of assessment starts to talk to teaching, starts to talk to planning, right? Like you get teachers sitting down and saying, okay, what are we actually teaching? Let's interpret the curriculum. Curriculum only kind of gets you so far. These are the things we're trying to cover in curriculum. Let, what would that look like at different levels? And sometimes going to work samples from previous years is a really handy exercise. Absolutely. Let's go see what did our year sevens do last year? What did our strongest year seven produce in, you know, whatever we're looking at? And so getting teachers to describe what it's going to look like at different levels I think is a really good start Mm -hmm. and I often get teachers to just go in four levels. I say you're always going to have outliers. Let's just go with like a one, two, three, four or a low, medium, high, outstanding kind of thinking. What are the observable things you expect to see at all those different levels? Mm -hmm. And that's the basis of a simple progression. And from there, you can do heaps. You know, you can plan, you can talk about the resources you need to move students along, you can set expectations. Um, I think you can do so much from a really simple exercise. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of really, really simple, but that's where I would get, get people started. Are there any uh, websites or books or anything like that that you would recommend if someone was getting in on the assessment journey? Yeah, so there's a, a book assessment for teaching. I'm pretty sure it came out first in 2014, but it's just a uh, second edition just recently out. It's edited by Patrick Griffin. And that kind of talks you through a lot of uh, – so it sets up the whole model that I was talking about before and also has particular chapters related to developmental rubric writing, covering off on some of those rules I was talking before. And it lays out some really nice guidelines um, a thing I like about the book is it's developed by a team of people in an assessment research center. And it's actually kind of uncommon, you know, to have a whole team of people researching in assessment, um, putting out something really clearly defined. So that's absolutely my go-to. Strongly recommend that book. That's great. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Let's move on to maybe a, uh, maybe away from assessment, but maybe not away from assessment and, and talk about uh, education in general. Um, is there something about education that you believe is true, but that most people or perhaps some other people would really disagree with you on? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure that people would necessarily disagree on this hugely, um, but I wonder about how well we cater, if at all, for really, really highly competent student teachers. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, I think, you know, we we kind of bang on a little bit uh, about catering for everyone and everyone deserving to learn. And and then we get into this kind of pattern out, out in the field of often providing, you know, huge amounts of supports to students who may be struggling or really going through something difficult in their lives that's making placement really difficult. And I often just go and see student teachers who are, just sublime like the the skills that they have the relationships they build they might be in a school for only three weeks and they look like they've been there for four years and it's almost really hard to give them feedback like you're just (laughs) giving them feedback that you think you should be giving yourself you know and you um kind of say oh my god well done like you're gonna get a job you're great and move on and I don't think we we have have that discussion enough. We have some of the brightest and best student teachers um, that that I've ever seen, 
um, and just the level, like the demands of uh, of the Masters of Teaching at the graduate school is such that we just have um, exquisitely intelligent, um, analytic, thoughtful people in our classrooms and um, really find it hard to cater to those really high-flying teachers who are going to go in and uh, be graduates and be the lowest paid people in their schools and not necessarily the least effective. Um, And so I'm really interested in what we can maybe do more for them because I think – I think currently we let down our best and brightest, youngest teachers, I would say. Yeah. Any, any initial ideas? What, any any thoughts about, you know, because that, that has got to be a little bit disheartening. You know, you get this feedback, you're amazing. You, you'll probably be better than, and, and I'm sure they've heard that, you'll be better than some of the teachers you're going out there that have been on the job for 20 years. What do we do to keep yeah. them motivated? A- any ideas? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, eh? No, no, no. <laughs> um, no, it's yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think part of the responsibility is on schools to really nurture people who come in with huge amounts of expertise and um, you know, really give them opportunities. Uh, I think it's pretty rare for people to find the time to come back to uh, to future study, but really encouraging those people early in their career. Yeah to kind of come back to study or to apply for leadership positions. I think particularly in my experience, um, female candidates are often very reluctant to go for leadership experience or they think they need, you know, 10 years of teaching under their belt before they step up and apply for, you know, like an assistant principal position or a leading teacher position. And um, just at at the school level, having a huge encouragement of the really high-flying kind of graduate teachers that come in, and they make a huge impact. Um, and in my experience in consulting, they're often the people, you know, trying to lead lead the greatest change. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I have no answers. That's just a <laughs> watch this space. You don't, yeah, that's exactly it. You don't have any answers <laughs> yet. And so, yeah. yeah. All right, next question. When you think of the term master teacher, um, what comes to mind? Is there someone who comes to mind and, and what are the, what are the qualities that you see? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a fairly easy one. So, uh, my dad definitely came to mind first. Uh, Mr. Jones, he's a high school music teacher. He's been teaching at one of the most highly regarded uh, high schools, uh, public high schools in Melbourne uh, called Baldwin High School. And um, I don't know what kind of – he's just a great teacher. Um, He's – extremely skilled he was my teacher it was really awkward so I went to uh high school there he was my um yeah he was my teacher for a while um he leads symphony orchestras string orchestras he's developed a music program at Baldwin High School he was the uh, head of music there for 10 years or so and um it's just extremely Extremely passionate, I would say, but really backs that passion with um, just the highest level of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think um, being a really, really highly skilled music educator is um, sort of yeah, sort of transformative, as I've sort of already spoken about. But he, uh, 
yeah, he definitely comes to mind. And then sort of secondly, in a really different context, uh, one of my close friends, uh, Belinda Crow, came through the Teach for Australia program when it was launched here. So I don't know if you've got that in Canada, so like the Teach First or Teach for America. There's Teach for America, and I've heard that Britain has their own version. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Canada doesn't really have one uh, a program like that yet. Yeah, you got to get you one of them. The, um, so she came through in the very first cohort sort of 10 years or so ago when it was launched here um, and really different to really, really different to my dad, English teacher working in rural um, Northern Territory in Australia in an Indigenous community. And, um, say, you know, similar though, the first thing I think comes to mind is, you know, passion backed up with an immense level of skill. And, um, yeah. So that was an easy one. Yeah, that's easy. Um, let's say let's say we were looking for teaching to be easy. What would it look like? So if we were to reduce all of everything and you were just to get down to the crux of what the most essential piece or pieces of teaching, what do you think that that would look like? Oh. Just teaching and easy in the same sentence really throws me. I just feel like it's like saying, what would winning a gold medal look like if it was easy? Like I just, I can't say, can't, um, I can't see that it's supposed to be easy or, you know, ever going to be easy. Um, what would it look like reduced to its most essential? Um, it's kind of corny, but, you know, relationships you know come to mind essentially a relationship um is so essential for teaching that if it was easy i think it would look like you know a whole kind of bunch of super happy people who trust each other um kind of learning stuff that they want to learn but i i just find that question almost impossible to answer (laughs) i just i just can't yeah yeah, i kind of yeah, I can't imagine that teaching should ever feel easy, except I was trying to think that when it does feel easy, I think it feels easy because the people want to be there. They want to learn the stuff. They want to teach the stuff and they get along really well. Yeah. This is like this, the crux of the the whole thing. But then again, I also think that teaching and learning just has to be, it has to be hard. <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't. I can't think of a time where I've taught something really well and thought, "Oh, that was easy." Um, <laughs> you know. So I think, by definition, it's it's got to be challenging. All right. Um, we're going to get into what I like to call the lightning round, and that's just where I'm. I'm looking for a really short response. Um, if it's particularly interesting, we'll we'll maybe drill down a bit more. But um, looking for not not a one word answer, but just a, a, a shorter. Um, response. Do you have a favorite education related app or a website? Yeah, so I'm late onto this, but I've just got into poll everywhere. So online polling uh, as a means for sort of quick brainstorming, collecting heaps of ideas from students quickly. Uh, A book that you quote or refer to that you have marked up the most doesn't have to be necessarily education related. Uh, yeah, I got two. One is assessment for teaching. I've already spoken about that, Patrick yeah. Griffin. Another one that I'm reading at the moment is uh, The Motherhood by Jamila Risby. He's a fantastic uh, sort of feminist writer here in Australia who's just released an anthology of short stories of the insanity of motherhood, which is perfect <laughs> for me because I've had a 10-month-old, and so I'm really into that. That's great. 
What's uh, what's something that you do every day or very regularly that keeps you well and healthy? Uh, sleep. I'm good at sleep. Organization or person who's inspiring you right now? Um, yes. Yeah, so this is kind of strange one out of left field, but we've just launched in Australia the AFLW, which is the Australian Football League uh, for women, <laughs> which is massive here. So women have been playing Australian rules football for, you know, over 100 years and have never had a competition to play in. So there's this huge movement at the moment here that I'm finding really inspiring where Women are finally pull, uh, pulling on footy jumpers and uh, women are getting along to watch women play and little girls' uh, competitions are popping up everywhere and it's booming. It's a really exciting time for Australian sport. That is amazing. And I now know what Australian rules football is. Thank you to Dr. Duncan Simon. <laughs> Who's your team? Who's your team? You I, I don't team? have one yet. Uh, he, he told me <gasps> okay. that it was – I can't remember his, his – I'll give you a team. Or, yeah. He, I'll give uh, you a team. Yeah, uh, he he promised to take me out uh, next time I was in Australia to show me the finer points. And uh, oh, you've got to go. Yeah, it's, I'm I'm yeah. excited. The Melbourne Demons, the Melbourne Demons. Is that your it? Team. Okay, that's your team. <laughs> so, um, Bronwyn, what's what's next for you? What are some of the questions that you're looking at? Um, maybe some of the things that you're looking at tackling, and and maybe what does the future hold for you? Uh, well, I better finish my doctorate just in case my supervisors are listening. That's definitely <laughs> next for me. Um, and just still really keen to be in schools, working in assessment and uh, trying to, you know, tackle how do we get um, really good, rigorous um, assessment happening in schools at a teacher level in, um, in classrooms so that teachers can learn to love data. That's the, the next, next frontier. The D word. Um, yeah. How can people connect with you? So, what? Um, let's say they're looking to follow uh, along. Uh, maybe contact you. Maybe reach out, even if to to get some to get you in to to work with their staff. Yeah. So uh, I'm on Twitter, which is at Ryrie R Y R I E underscore Jones, um, and uh, BronwynRyrieJones.com is my uh, consultancy site. That's great. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to us. Um, a lot of great stuff around assessment and, and beyond. So I really appreciate it. I think people are going to love, love what you have to say. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Bronwyn Ryrie-Jones. I hope you enjoyed this one and we'll be back soon with our next episode.